mentioned, of course, it goes without saying, good morning. Good morning, all of you that are listening to my, my 100,000 watt combat radio signal. You know, I don't actually, I, I don't actually do a radio show with a trained voice, but I could do it. I could see where that would be sort of cool. And now coming up next, I didn't ask Wildcard, did we resolve our issue from yesterday? Oh, okay. Well, then the the uh, common sense retirement planning text line <laughs> is seven one three zero seven. I am streaming live currently on the WORD Facebook page, and you can find the podcast for this fine show and others just like it right on the free Odyssey app. I remember the first time I saw a Tesla, I didn't know what to look for in an electric car. I'd heard about how, you know, I just figured every car that was an electric car out there drove itself. And uh, it, it could go wherever it wanted. It was sort of like the minority report cars. And, uh, you know, I had driven a hybrid. I've never driven an electric vehicle. I've ridden in one electric vehicle. And nowadays when you drive, you see the odd electric vehicle in the combination of internal combustion cars, hybrids, and electric vehicles that are out there. One in 10, one in 20. Just depends on where you live. The modern left, well, just like Martin Luther King, they have a dream. That soon, very soon, every vehicle on the planet, on the earth, will be electric, running on a heavy cobalt-laden lithium battery that needs to be charged up somewhere with electricity derived from an out-of-sight coal plant. Now, every free, every few trips, right, I go out there, I'm an old-fashioned internal combustion engine driver, and I stop at a gas station. And I get out, and I swipe my card, and I do all the stuff, and I pop the gas, you know, in, in five, ten minutes, tops, and that's if I have to go use the restroom, I'm out of there. Now, you're not going to see too many EVs charging up while we fill our normal cars with fuel because it takes too long. They're not pulling up. They're parking. So they don't usually do it at a gas station. The, the electric vehicle current average, I'm told, is eight hours to a full charge, whatever that means. Mileage range is going to vary. Sometimes it's 100 miles, sometimes it's 400 miles, and it's everything in between. Some chargers charge faster, some vehicles take longer. And like any other kind of rechargeable battery, as each battery ages, it's going to take longer and longer to charge up, and the mileage per charge will decrease. This is just the law of the land when it comes to batteries. The electric vehicle advocates are legion. You see them in the politics and in the news media and in the you know, at work and in school, singing the praises of their clean cars that never break down and meet all their needs perfectly. And I think electric cars are actually sort of cool. I don't like their batteries, but I think that overall the design of the car and what it does and what it brings to the table is sort of cool. But, you know, most people that get them, they install a charging station at home and... Uh, Maybe they work somewhere where there's a charging station for them. So their day-to-day -day lives are perfectly convenient. They can drive up somewhere and plug up and charge. 
The challenge of the daily routine in which we seek out an affordable gas station in the age of Joe Biden's economy uh, has been completely conquered. Park the car, plug it in, fully charged for another normal day. Except sometimes days aren't normal, are they? So right now we're in the middle of summertime, or as they would call it, the heat wave. The, the climate change heat wave. That's what we're in. And many of us have a vacation spot, a cottage out in the country, a, you know, a, a trailer on the lake, somewhere to go, a brother or cousin's place, you know. And when we get there, there might not be any electricity there, but that's okay because the oven there works on an oil generator or a propane tank. And you get to go out and spend the weekend doing some fishing or swimming or camping or water skiing or jet skiing. Now, if this cabin or wherever it is you're going, is if it's 100 miles away or a couple of hundred, how do you get out there when you've run your EV out of power on the way in? Now, that's question number one. You know, hundreds of thousands of us, maybe millions of us, we go to this, go to the big city, even though right now it's a hellhole. Maybe take a weekend off or a whole week and, you know, go visit sites of New England or drive up the Pacific coast or hit the lakeshore towns of the Great Lakes or, you know, just any sort of place where you can do a little road trip and see the sites. Now, the EV fanboys have an answer for this one, too. They'll say your hotel will have a charger station so you can charge up every night. But that's not mandated. <laughs> that's not required because they're awfully expensive. Hotels have never needed to be in the power business before. Now they're going to have to add a charger outside essentially for every single room. So the 50-room hotel will now need 50 chargers in its parking lot. The 200-room hotel will need 200 chargers in their parking lot. Will the local electric grid in this area be able to support this sort of a drop? Is there room in the hotel's parking lot for all of these cars? If not, is there more land for the hotel to acquire to facilitate an EV-forced expansion? Maybe it's time to say goodbye to the cheap hotel, the Expedia, the Priceline deal, all of those things, right? You know. So let's put that aside. We go to Disneyland, right? We go to Chicago. We go to New York, Boston, St. Louis. Many stay in hotels, many others drive in the early morning, park at the event, expect to drive home that night. No place to charge during the day if you hope for that trip to be the same day you're out of luck. If you have relatives to stay with or whatever, if they don't have a charging station where you're at, then where are they going to go? People park, we're about to have the state fair here. Does the state fair in, in Easley, in Pickens, right off of 123, does that have charging stations there for you? Do they have them in the parking lots? Hundreds of homeowners in places like West Allis, Wisconsin, rent out spaces to fairgoers on their own front lawns. Are they going to have to? Uh, are they going to have to have a charging station? But see, here's the thing. While we're looking for these answers, we'll be told by the leftist that don't worry because that'll be handled. And you're, well, how's it going to be handled? Who's going to pay for this? Well, here's the answer to this. How's this going to be handled? You don't need to be doing all of this stuff. 
They want you to watch your entertainment on your smart TV or your laptop or your streaming service from the comfort of your own little apartment. Because you also won't be getting it. You won't have a separate home. If you want to attend a live performance, you can take public transportation to the nearest official venue, staffed by union members, ticketed by Ticketmaster. You don't need to go to visit a river, a lake, or travel to explore American heritage through the Civil War, Revolutionary War sites. Fishing trips, road trips, hunting trips, baseball, football, college tours, family, bonding drives. You don't need any of that. Just stay home, stay safe, stay still, stay where we can watch you. See, the EV pushes don't see any gaps or contradiction. All the needs you have, the EVs simply don't meet can't meet or will never meet well these aren't really needs these aren't really needs at all you're wrong to want to gather in groups of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands all these ev shortcomings aren't really a shortcoming at all freedom of assembly as described in that obsolete first amendment which is part of that obsolete bill of rights which was all part of this obsolete republic project all of that is dangerous from the perspective of your betters so this push for us to get in EVs has nothing to do with uh, what's best for Gaia. It's what's best for them. This is all about accountability and being able to watch and observe and know where we are. This is all a control pattern they're setting up. A control pattern. Therein is their, that, that's their solution, all waiting for you. <laughs> Congratulations! I knew there had to be a, I knew there had to be a, a solution to this. I just didn't know what it was. I got a lead from a listener on the text line the other day. Turns out in Afghanistan we had that suicide bomber. He was in the crosshair reticle of a sniper, and that sniper got told to hold. This is News Talk ninety eight nine W O R D. All right, the Common Sense Retirement Planning text line is 71307. Streaming live on the WORD Facebook page. Of course, having the busy throat. That's, that's, that's just, I, I don't have it before or after the show, but I do during the show. This is a requirement. I was forced to, to sign a non-disclosure agreement on that, and now you're on the inside baseball. House Foreign Affairs Committee Chairman Michael McCall is asking questions now from those who are in charge on the ground in Kabul during the withdrawal from Afghanistan. He's seeking testimony from a commander who, according to previous testimony, chose not to issue clearance to neutralize the target believed to be the suicide bomber who killed more than, you know, thir killed 13 people. In March, Tyler Vargas Andrews, a sergeant in the United States Marine Corps who was in Kabul as the uh, haphazard withdrawal was taking place, testified that he and other Marines saw a suspicious individual they believed was the, was the ISIS-K suicide bomber who eventually detonated a device that killed 13, seven, uh, 13 service members and dozens of Afghans outside of HKIA. Sergeant Vargas Andrews 
Stated, I opened my eyes to Marines dead or unconscious lying around me. The withdrawal was a catastrophe in my opinion. There was an inexcusable lack of accountability and negligence. Sergeant Vargas Andrews was a sniper. And he said he asked for engagement authority to neutralize the suspicious individual but didn't receive it, ending up himself wounded in the blast that followed the denial of clearance to take out the presumed bomber. In a letter to Lloyd Austin on Tuesday, the second anniversary of Kabul's fall to the Taliban, uh, McCall summarized the Vargas Andrews testimony. Now, he also noted, after that testimony, at least one day prior to the bombing, intelligence indicated ISIS-K was orchestrating an imminent mass casualty event in Afghanistan, and that Kabul airport was, was at risk. Early on the morning of the attack, along with the description of the bomber, identifying him and noting his presence in the area. This is called intelligence. This is actually actionable intelligence. And for those that are out there, I mean, what they, they should have given Andrews clearance on the shot. Okay? If they didn't give him clearance on the shot because they were sitting there going, oh, well, you know, we never do know if... Uh, uh, you, 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 never, uh, you never know this and you never know that and you don't know who you're shooting or anything um, that's why war is hell that's why war is hell so you know apparently this commander in charge on the ground he must have been a little squeamish McCall explained in his letter, this implies components of the military and others had more than 12 hours of advanced warning. Additionally, the military's reliance on the Taliban to provide security at the airport created an environment rife with opportunities for security breakdowns. And emphasized that it's essential to carefully examine these events to assess what happened that day and whether the Abbey Gate attack was avoidable. Not a single person within the Biden administration has been held accountable for the catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan. So, Here's the thing. When that happened, Millie should have resigned. Austin should have resigned. Right? Everybody in charge on the ground, from the first-line supervisor up on the ground in Afghanistan, should have resigned. The, Army, the, the Marine Corps Chief of Staff should have resigned. This is the way this works. This is a failure on their watch. There's a big difference between this kind of a failure and, say, a combat casualty as well. Now, Representative McCall pledging not to rest until we uncover every stone and get to the bottom of how this happened and who is responsible for these failures, uh, noted that America's service members, veterans, and our Gold Star families, especially those who lost family in on August 26th at Abbey Gate, deserve answers, which... Uh, now we're getting into the word salad part of it, okay? There are lots of people that when, you know, when the glaring light of the camera is not on them, lots of people die in training accidents that are classified in nature that you never get to know what happened to them. And that's part of the job. That's a part of the job. And if it's, uh, you know, if this is something that cannot be handled, I'm sure the family members 
of these individuals know what kind of, you know, know who they're dealing with, who their family member is. So, yeah, I don't know how much the family members are out there going, I need to know every single detail of this. This, on the other hand, was not one of those adventures. This was a planned withdrawal that we, you know, telegraphed we were going to do. And then we allowed them to hit at us and, and snipe at us as we're headed out the door. Now, while they're searching for the truth, that doesn't necessarily mean that we ever learn the truth. Now, in today's world, now that's a whole, that's a whole, I'll have to, I'll, I'll do that. Uh, th that's a whole different kind of thing. I'm being told on the text line not to re refer to it as Kabul, refer to it as Kaboom. Some, from somebody on, on the, uh, from somebody that served in the sandbox. I wasn't there, so I my, my apologies. But listen, I probably got out of the military before you were born, kid. Okay, so if I don't know, well, I just don't know. McCall reminded Secretary Austin that uh, Andrews's commanding officer, Lieutenant Colonel Brad Whited had already discussed his experience during the Afghanistan withdrawal, including the Abigate attack in a recent document, uh, documentary. And as such, we expect that the Department of Defense will assist in facilitating this, his appearance at, before this committee. So McCall set a August 25 deadline for Austin and the Pentagon to arrange for the interview to take place no later than September 22nd. Um, okay. So... In whatever in, in whatever world in which they exist, uh, this was a foul up, plain and simple. However you want to, however you want to put it, however you want to see it, it was a foul up. In the military, they would call it something else, but they both begin with F, and it cost lives, and nobody took responsibility for it. Not Vargas's first line supervisor. When Vargas asked for for permission to engage, from that point on, he identified the target. He saw the target. They they give out these little briefings and everything, and you get you know you see you you, you know who you're looking for. And then when you see him, and you're like there there he is there he is there's the guy that's the guy that's the bad guy. And nobody from you know. This is the way chains of command work. You know, you're supposed to. Uh, this guy's got a mission, and you got to allow. You got to help him execute his mission. So, we'll see where this goes. Uh, getting out there and giving Lloyd Austin or Millie a deadline—that's uh, falling on deaf ears. Speaking of the military, back in the day, the military used to assist. Used to assist. The areas where they were stationed, I guess they don't do, don't, don't do that now. We'll be right back. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. See, there's this, this issue with uh, when you're in the military and you're training, and on the text line, let's we'll, we'll go to the text line real quick, and I'll answer this question. The uh, and the common sense retirement planning text line is seven one three zero seven. 
I am streaming live on the WORD Facebook page, and the podcast is available on the free Odyssey app. Um, I'm being asked what would have happened to the uh, to the sniper if he'd just taken the shot without authorization. I have no idea. But that would have been a uh, a break in protocol. And my presumption would have been that somebody would have noticed that. And also, since it was a suicide bomber, I don't know if that would have kept him from triggering his uh, explosion or not. Um, you know, the shock trauma of a sniper round normally sort of deanimates you pretty quick, but there's always that as well. Also on the text line, I'm being taken to task because I'm out here and I'm, I'm beating up on renewables. And uh, I'm tired of all you people on the right thinking that all renewable and sust sustainable sources of energy is a hoax. We've got to make a move somewhere. Do you think oil is going to last forever? When that runs out, where do we turn from here? And I send them, hey, go ask California. In California, they have they they were going to take out the last nuclear plant, but they didn't. And the last three natural gas plants they have left in place. And right now they're importing power from nuclear power plants in from out of state. They're also getting ready to do two-way siphoning of power from people who have electric cars. So, um, I'm not sure about how the exact quantifiable sources of our, our natural gas reserves, our shale, our, our petroleum, our crude oil. I'm not really sure about that. What I am sure about is that we're not getting any of them, and we were energy independent just three short years ago. And it's a lot easier to develop new technology when you're using the old technology to sustain things currently. So, this wildfire in Maui. This is not the first time this has happened, but what I was about to talk about, when you go out and you train, especially when you're in a place with limited real estate, like, say, Hawaii, to train, you're probably going out into the actual... It's referred to as going out into the economy, or it was when I was in. So when you're going out into the economy, uh, that means that everything that you're doing is actually going to have some sort of an effect, good or bad, on the economy. Now back in the, uh, in the 80s, in Hawaii, the Marine Corps accidentally, accidentally stopped, started a fire. <laughs> now, when these guys would go out and train in these places, that the, these training grounds have been used for so long by the military that these guys in the 80s would occasionally run up on an old M1 Garand clip. So, in this particular instance, one of the platoons from the uh, from the uh, from the Marines, they set up a defensive position at something called the East Range. And the aggressors were going to come to them and they were going to have a firefight. So it would be initiated by the detonation of a grenade simulator. So since you know, since you know everything that's about to happen and everything, then uh, when, as, as that's getting ready to go, since you're just getting ready to go and waiting on that simulator. Well, the grenade simulator went off now. This was followed by shouts of the squad leader there, fire, fire, fire. Well, the uh, the guys there, 
They took that to mean get on the triggers and go. But then the same voice started shouting, no, 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 cease fire. The jungle is on fire. And the grenade simulator had ignited the vegetation surrounding it. Now, of course, these these kids that were training, uh, they were training to pretend to kill people. They were not training to fight a fire. They had no contingency plan for that. So they pulled back to an area that wasn't on fire and they grounded their equipment. Then they went back to the fire to beat out the flames with with their BDU shirts. Well, the fire found some live ammo that they didn't know was there and they started hearing it cook off. So then they fell back to where their gear was stowed again and they just sat there. And pretty soon the Hue- the Hueys and the Chinook showed up and they had big, huge buckets slung underneath them. They'd flown over the Pacific and scoped, scooped up some seawater and dumped that payload on the East Range. Two or three trips, problem solved. No dolphins were harmed while putting that fire out. So, back in the day, back when I served, there, uh, you know, there were two Army posts in Oahu two Marine installations, two Air Force bases, and Navy at Pearl Harbor. So, where were they in this Maui wildfire? Why weren't they activated to some degree? When they when they had that fire in the 80s, there was not, you didn't have 90-mile-per-hour winds whipping it up. But you have, char- and listen, helicopter pilots are, are those guys are, they're gutsy. They'll fly into all kinds of stuff because they do. They fly into all kinds of stuff all the time. Biden received a lot of flack for his response to the fire from no comment to the $700 household relief per, you know, $700 per per household. Um, The loafers that didn't want to do anything, they received more during the pandemic. But where was the military presence? Why didn't, why didn't they, you know, Back when Hurricane Eva knocked out power on Oahu, Honolulu had power the next day because the Navy plugged a six-foot-thick cable into a nuclear submarine at Pearl Harbor and jump-started the whole city. Military members will help the civilians clean up and recover from all kinds of things if they need it. And uh, all of these boots on the ground were 45 minutes away from Maui. They've got logistics to deliver food and medical assistance. They can bring power with them. They can bring communications with them. Why aren't we seeing that? Why? Now I'm going to address that Mental midget who was asking me about renewable energy. I I had this planned all along, and now you guys get to hear about that, as does he. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD. You know, California is the place you want to be, right? Yeah, just like the Beverly Hillbillies thought. Common Sense Retirement Planning text line is 71307. I am streaming live on the WORD Facebook site, Facebook page, whatever. I'll get it right sooner or later. 
Gavin Newsom wants to be your president. He wants to turn us into the United States of California. Well, California's got issues. They got a lot of issues, and one of them is power. And right now, the climate activists in California are upset and crying. And I am drinking their tears neat because it's so tasty. Because the California Energy Commission, and for whatever reason, the State Water Resources Control Board, voted to commute the death sentences of three coastal uh, gas-fired power plants. Their stay of execution goes through 2026. The votes were both controversial and unanimous. <laughs> well, they were only controversial to the people who think that, you know, turbines are going to make up for the difference in what we get from a natural gas-powered plant or a nuclear plant. Because they have blackouts and grid failures in California all the time. So we get this. California officials agreed today to extend operations at three natural gas plants on the southern California coast in an effort to shore up California's straining power grid and avoid rolling blackouts. The controversial and unanimous vote that keeps the plants open came from the State Water Resources Control Board, which oversees the phase-out of natural gas facilities that suck in seawater and kill marine life. Seawater cold units at three power plants in Long Beach, Huntington Beach, and Oxnard will be kept in reserve for three more years to feed energy into the state's grid during power emergencies. Read that to be, you know, peak times. And uh, the plants have been slated to cease operations of those units by the end of 2020. They received a three-year extension amid rolling blackouts that summer. Now the extension has been extended again through 2026. A fourth, the Scattergood Generating Station in Playa del Rey will receive a five-year extension to fill regional supply caps through 2029. I wonder if Brill Cream will show up and go like he did to the Diablo Canyon nuclear plant this year. He had a momentary reality check and he saved it from shutting down as well. And for all of the hissy fits that we see about energy, and this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, we've been hearing this for years. We've been hearing we're going to run out of gas for years. We've been hearing we're going to run out of oil for years. We've been hearing we're going to burn up or freeze for years. None of these modeled predictions have ever come true. We have matured the technology for internal combustion engines, natural gas you know, power plants, these you know, coal-fired power plants, to where we have actually reduced CO2 emissions in the United States. But for the climate cultists of California, well, they, they, you know, that's not nearly good enough. First of all, they squawk about nuclear. And they threw a hissy fit over extending the life of the Diablo Canyon license. Now, they don't mind taking nuclear-generated power from the states around them when their grid has to purchase the extra trons, as it so often does. And see, Gaia is all around us. It's not just in California. So wherever they're buying these from, you know, it's just as big of a threat there, right? But these are the well-funded uber-vocal green NIMBYs, as not in my backyards and the bananas, build absolutely nothing anywhere near anything crowd that always has very little appreciation about how much their vegan bacon is saved by these much-reviled gas fire plants as solar and wind, whatever the excuse is made for them, simply don't cut the mustard. 
Lack of power means death for some people in certain circumstances. And I know in California, you know, they're out there, well, we do medically assisted, uh, medically assisted uh, death and all this other stuff. But, you know, in 2020, nuclear power accounted for 9.3% of California's electricity. Natural gas, 37%. Most of California's nuclear energy is generated by Diablo Canyon. But they also import nuclear-powered electricity from Arizona and Washington State. And they import more electricity than any other state, about 30% of their supply in 2020, including some coal-fired plants that are large sources of greenhouse gases, according to the California Energy Commission. So I thought the renewables were just so good and great. And they now have to purchase the go-juice. When they used to produce so much, they could sell it. This is snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, isn't it? And right now, today, in the green world, hearts are broken and tears are being shed. And uh, for some of them, they're, you know, they're furious. Some of them are just resigned. And, you know, excuse-making for why their sacred renewable hasn't saved the state from a steamy death yet. Even as much of the world is on fire. But see, that also plays into the thing because everything, if it were cool right now, they would say this is obviously climate change. If this was hot, obviously climate change. So it's hot right now. So right now we keep getting hotter and more flammable and it results in more aggressive heat waves and wildfires. As if, as if weather is emotional. It's aggressive. Go somewhere and suck your thumbs or something. I, I don't know. Try to find solace. We're going to go look at a victim of society when we get back just because we need to know what we're looking at when we get to hear about these cats on a regular basis. This is News Talk 98.9 WORD, the voice of the Carolinas. <laughs> 